If you're listening to this, you probably have 66 books in your Bible. However, there are some people out there who get over 70 in their Bibles. So if we were to break this down into car terms, are other people riding around in luxury cars while we've got the most basic model, or do they just have a lot of extra features that aren't even necessary? Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. Before we jump into the meat of this episode, I just want to take a moment to thank some of my monthly supporters over on Patreon. Norali, who has been supporting Onward in the Faith since November of 2020. Todd and Shelley, who have supported since May of 2020 and Leah and Jim, who have supported since March of 2020. If you would like to join them in supporting this ministry, then you can check the link down in the show notes or visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Now, in the last episode, I did more of a high overview of how we got our 66 books of the Bible. And to really sum up all that we discussed, the common theme of that was that the books that we have were not chosen over others. They weren't handpicked. There was no agenda behind it. But instead, the books that we have were recognized for their clear authority and inspiration in the life of Christians. And so at the end of that, we concluded that we can be confident in the authority of our 66 books because through our own understanding today, as well as the hard work and wisdom of our early church fathers, we are confident that these 66 books truly are divinely inspired by God. So for this episode, it's going to be important for us to look at the other books that Christians have spent centuries wondering about. Because when people find out about these books, they may wonder, why don't we use them today? Or are we missing out on teachings from God? Or we may go the other direction and wonder if we should read these books at all, or maybe they are tools of the devil that he tried to infiltrate the Bible with in order to corrupt Christians. Now, I'm going to start off by saying I don't think any of these are accurate. We aren't missing out on more teachings from God because everything that we need is contained within God's word and anything from those other books that are true are going to be things that align with what already exists in God's word. If you remember last time, we talked about how the law of non-contradiction means that a book of the Bible cannot counter or contradict something else that God has already revealed. So we don't need to worry that if we don't have these extra books that we are somehow missing out on new and vital information that's going to rapidly change our understanding of the important things in the Christian life. On the other hand, these books are not necessarily bad. They are not inspired. They are clearly written by human beings with the inspiration being purely the human mind. However, they're just because they're not divinely inspired doesn't mean they are any less valuable than a book written by a modern-day author or a modern-day historian. And as we're going to discuss in this episode, I'm not going to cover every single book, but we will see that some of these books do contain some valuable insights into how people in the past thought. It can give some clarification on historical events and things like that. Now, as far as why some Bibles do include these books, it ultimately boils down to one of two things. Either one, it is because 
either people in the past or people today have a misunderstanding of the history surrounding these books and how the canon was chosen, or someone is just wanting to stubbornly hold to tradition. Uh, I think not in a disrespectful way, but you think of Roman Catholics where they are built on tradition and being consistent and steadfast and always holding to the same thing. So if Roman Catholics have always had certain books in their Bible, it is important for them and for their identity to continue using those same books of the Bible. So rather than tackling absolutely every single book that people may or may not have wondered about, in this episode, what I want to do is really just talk about those books that are commonly found in the Catholic Bible. Uh, now, what's interesting about this that many people may not know is that this is not unique to the Catholic Bible, but the original King James translation of the Bible also included many of these books before uh, further translations had removed them. But in the original 1611 King James Bible, you'll notice that between the Old and New Testament, there's a little bit more paper than what you may expect to find because they include many of these books from the Old Testament. Now, as far as all the books that are there, uh, there are some that are seen as more inspired than others. There are nine that are definitely used, uh, and some may even go up to 14 extra books. But for sake of this episode, we will only talk about the nine that are commonly assumed to be inspired that are featured in the Roman Catholic Bible today and elsewhere. So the first book that is not featured in our Bibles is called Ecclesiasticus. These are simply proverbs from a rabbi who lived shortly before Christ. Next is the Wisdom of Solomon. These are allegedly writings from King Solomon that combats the Greek love of wisdom and calls for us to desire faith above all else. Now, I say allegedly from Solomon because you're going to find that a lot with these what are called extra biblical books is they claim authorship from a specific individual, but based on things like the language, where we find it the style, things like that. It's very obviously written long after the supposed author actually wrote it. So the Wisdom of Solomon is one such thing. Next is Tobit. This is a story about a son who goes on a journey for his father, meets a virgin whose husband keeps getting killed by demons on their wedding night, and then Tobit kills the demon and returns home to cure his father's blindness. Pretty epic tale, if I do say so myself. Next, you have Bell and the Dragon. These are additions to the Book of Daniel. Uh, so if you think of something like the Lord of the Rings versus the Lord of the Rings, the extended edition, this would be the Book of Daniel, the extended edition. Uh, but Bell and the Dragon is about a priest who sneaks into the temple and eats offerings left for an idol so that people will believe that a god did it. But Daniel manages to reveal this deception. The dragon part of Bell and the Dragon is about Daniel's encounter with people worshipping a giant snake and Daniel's eventual defeat of this dragon. Now, worth noting is that the dragon of this story is assumed to give clarity and understanding to mentions of a dragon in biblical prophecy. 
Next, we have 1st and 2nd Maccabees. This is some that uh, more people may be familiar with, at least having heard the name. Uh, This was written about 150 years before Christ. It gives historical details about events that happened during that time. Now, what's really interesting here is that 1st Maccabees is actually accepted by historians as a true historical account of 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 a revolution that occurred while 2nd Maccabees tells these same stories from a more religious and therefore supernatural perspective. Now, 2nd Maccabees contains a fairly good amount of Roman Catholic teaching, especially about purgatory. So when you say, you know, how can Roman Catholics believe in purgatory? That's not found anywhere in the Bible. It is found in the Bible, just not the Bible that you are reading. But if their Bible includes 2 Maccabees, then they can say, hey, look, here in God's divinely inspired word, you can see talks of purgatory. Next, and if you're um, at all familiar with biblical criticism, this is actually a really interesting one. The next book is Esther. Now, not necessarily the book of Esther, we're familiar with that, but additions or additional verses that are meant to be plugged in to the book of Esther. Now, a, like I said, a major criticism of the book of Esther is that it doesn't really contain much religious value. It's just kind of a almost atheistic story, right? God is not necessarily supernaturally working in the ways that we see in other Old Testament stories. And there doesn't seem to be much to it other than almost a slice of life seeing a historical event. Well, this these additional verses remedy that by turning Esther into more of a book of prophecy instead of a book of history. Next is the book of Judith. This is a Jewish widow who saves her city by seducing the enemy general and cutting off his head. So very much in line with something like the book of Judges. And then the next one is Baruch. This was written allegedly by Jeremiah's scribe and contains teachings against idolatry. So if you're wondering... Why Jeremiah's scribe is relevant, in Jeremiah 36.4, Baruch is actually named. It says, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And so this, this lost book of Baruch or this extra book of Baruch would basically contain more of God's teachings against idolatry. Now, some of these sound interesting and somewhat in line with what you would expect to hear from the Bible. Others can sound really weird. Now, what I want to point out, as a lot of, I assume, listeners of Onward in the Faith are only using 66 books of the Bible, it's very easy to just hand wave and be dismissive of these things. But I think it's important for us to be fair to these stories. It's easy to read about some of these or to actually read the stories themselves and have really outlandish things like in the book of Tobit, where Tobit defeats a demon with a fish. I'm very serious about that. He uses a fish through the instruction of an angel to defeat a demon. And we can read stuff like that and wonder how people can just fall for such silly stories. And we can think to ourselves, oh, obviously that doesn't belong in the Bible. That's just very mythological and just so silly and so outlandish. There's no way that belongs in the Bible. I want us to remember, though, that most of us believe that there was a actual fish that swallowed Jonah for three days. We believe that a nation walked around a city for a 
few days and then blew trumpets and an entire stone city collapsed. We believe that a guy named Samson got strength because of his long hair. And we believe that dead people walked around Jerusalem after Christ's death, if you read Matthew 27, 52 to 53. Again, we don't want to just be dismissive and say, oh, I don't believe that, so I'm going to minimize it and ridicule it. Because the things that we believe God did miraculously throughout history can be pretty outlandish to other people who don't believe in what we believe is divinely inspired by God and therefore a true accounting of historical events. So instead of just mocking the contents of them, instead, I want us to examine the bigger issues with these texts. Now, the first issue to pay attention to is that as we grow in our understanding of historical texts and being able to analyze and understand when things were written, it becomes clear that these were written during the 400-year period between the Old and the New Testament. So the Old Testament basically ends. We have a 400-year period of silence. Then Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and we have things like the Gospels leading into the rest of the New Testament. But during that 400-year gap, God seemed to be very quiet. He was not speaking through his prophets. He was not working miraculously through his people. The Jews of that time were living fairly normal and mundane lives. And so logically, if we're honest and we consider the worldview perspective of those people growing up with all these stories and these texts of how God worked through their people, it makes sense that these people would want something to indicate that God was still active and speaking to his people in that time period. So just as today people want God to continue to speak through prophecy and people don't want to be content with what God has truly given us, we want more, we want something new and fresh and even maybe different, people back then were likely very desperate to hear anything from their God. But despite that, we also need to realize that none of these writings were ever accepted by Jews of that day. So we talked about how one of the primary judgments that determined what goes into our Old Testament is simply saying, what did the Jews always hold to be authoritative? These extra books that you know were allegedly written during the Old Testament time, or they were written during that period, like the Maccabees, we need to realize that while they may have been read and understood by Jews, they did not hold them with that same level of authority as the rest of the Old Testament. And so whatever the motivation was for writing these extra books, they were never seen as genuine or given to the Jews by God. They were interesting, but not recognized as having divinely inspired truth or having been directly given through a prophet. So, the easy way to handle that is to say that if God's people didn't recognize these at the time they were written, there's little reason that we should acknowledge them today. It's also worth noting that the books that we've talked about were not referenced by Christ, the apostles, or most of the early church fathers. Uh, now, Ecclesiasticus and Wisdom of Solomon, the first two we talked about, they do have some mentions in the early church, but not to the degree as any of the other 66 books of the New and Old Testament. And so from this, we can also conclude that their authority wasn't recognized until about the 1500s when the Catholic 
church, or I should say the Roman Catholic Church, made them an official part of the church's teachings. Now, you may have heard these books called the term the Apocrypha, and I want to be clear, I don't believe that these are products of evil, or that someone is wicked for even reading it out of curiosity. I think, as someone who just has a a interest in history, they are a worthwhile read just to see what people were talking about and thinking about during that 400-year gap or even thinking about after the time of Christ and the Apostles, when you get to the uh, different stuff like the Gospel of Thomas and things like that. These aren't something we should teach out of, they aren't something we should necessarily get truth out of, but they can be informative or at the very least interesting. But I think ultimately they were written, again, not to be evil, but really to fill in gaps that God seemed to leave. Whether it was that 400-year silence, whether it was things like the book of Esther and someone saying, hey, this should be more theological. It should be more divine. And so someone, for whatever reason, thought it was a good idea to add verses to it to make Esther line up more with what they expected God's word to look like. And at the end of the day, it may have just been well-meaning Jews who mistakenly thought that they had received a message from God like prophets had before. Again, you look around today and you have people who are so convinced they're prophets and they've received a direct message from God, not realizing that the prophets of old didn't suspect, they didn't have strong hunches that a word came from the Lord, but that the word truly was from the Lord. And so these other writers may have had fuzzy feelings, they may have had really cool ideas, and at the end of the day, may have just relied on their emotions and said, hmm, this feels right, this feels like it's from God. Not realizing it was probably a mixture of their own ideas, experiences, and desires, prompting them to want it to be confirmed through a more divine source. Again, not inherently evil, just misguided. And then... Another suggestion that I have heard is simply that these were collections of fiction, things that people originally wrote not to be taken seriously, not to be taken literally, but to be kind of thought of or understood maybe alongside the biblical texts. But over time, people picked them up and thought, hey, here is something that truly happened. And people completely misunderstood their intent or their genre and assumed that these fictitious books were meant to be nonfiction. But whatever their origin, there is a very good reason that these books were rejected for 2,000 years. Now, to very quickly sum up, because we went through the nine books, but I said that the Apocrypha contain, uh, can contain up to 14 books. So for, as far as these other five goes, they would be kind of lumped in with other books that aren't part of that 14, but are just all kinds of alleged books that people think could maybe have been written by this person or that person. Because really, we have many books that were written between the Old and New Testament and many others that were attributed to various apostles and teachers and New Testament characters. So ultimately, what do we do with these things that are so out there on the fringe without any real reason to believe that they're authoritative. Ultimately, we just fall back on the important process that recognized our 66 books were truly authoritative. Because when we realize the process that affirmed the books we do have, we can rely on that to understand why these other books were not embraced, not recognized, and not even really used by 
Christ, the apostles, or people in the early church. Now, I will say, some of these are tempting to add, especially if they don't seem to contradict necessarily other doctrines throughout scripture, and it's even more tempting, especially in our modern age, to add ones that seem to reveal brand new information that we've never seen anywhere else in the Bible. But as we discussed, the law of non-contradiction protects us from different teachings, even though we want may, we may want particular things to be true. And that is why we don't use things like the Gospel of Thomas, which, to sum up a part of it, says that if a woman wants to enter heaven, then if she can turn herself into a man, she will be guaranteed entrance. Again, people say, well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Wasn't it written by Thomas? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Does that have any contradiction with anything else in God's word? If it does, it's clear that even though it may have the, the heading, the Gospel of Thomas, that doesn't mean that it was written by Thomas or divinely inspired and intended by God to be read by his people for thousands of years. So that is, in a nutshell, what we do with these extra books and how we understand why these extra books were not included in our Bibles. It really just comes down to what came from the Jews for the Old Testament, or in terms of New Testament, what clearly came from an apostle, and how do we know that based on how the early church talked about them, quoted them, or recognized them as authoritative. Now, there is one special mention that I want to make, and that is the Book of Enoch, because that is an interestingly tricky book that I am I am still trying to, to wrap my mind around. So, although Part of the Book of Enoch was likely written about 100 years before Christ, again, during that 400-year period of silence. The book has a lot in it, and of note, the first portion of it clarifies the events in Genesis 6-4, where it talks about how the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so what the book of Enoch does is it adds clarity to what these Nephilim were, what was happening at the time of Genesis, you know, with the sons of God who are recognized as um, angelic type spirits, the daughters of men being actual men, and therefore these Nephilim being human uh, spirit being hybrids. Uh, interestingly, if you read it, it also seems to prophesy a lot about Jesus Christ and has a prophecy that if it's true... And if it's a meant to be taken numerically so, uh, this would mean that the judgment and revelation will happen in the year 2300. Now, historically speaking, the Book of Enoch was thought to be inspired until about 300 AD. And even Jews were accused of rejecting the Book of Enoch specifically because it held prophecies that clearly pointed to Jesus. Now, we talked before about, you know, did Jesus or the apostles ever quote from a book to help us understand if it was authoritative? And with the book of Enoch, th there actually are quotes. It's referenced twice. We see it in Jude 14, which says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Again, we don't see a prophecy from Enoch in the book of Genesis. 
And so Jude here is quoting from the book of Enoch. We also see it mentioned in the book of 1 Peter. So if it's quoted, why isn't it in our Bibles? And there's a couple points of that that I want to talk about. The first is to understand what the book of Enoch really is. Because I talked about how only the first part of it really seems to clarify things. Uh, Because you may hear it referred to as the book of Enoch, but really we need to think of it more as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In other words, we have 1st Enoch, 2nd Enoch, and 3rd Enoch. Now, the 2nd and 3rd parts of it have a lot more suspicion around them. And those are the ones that historians would suspect were written at about 100 BC. But 1st Enoch is significantly different in style, and even its history seems to trace farther back than many of these other books that existed from the that uh, t- period of silence. So we can reject the last two because obviously they didn't have anything to do with the Enoch in the book of Genesis. But the first one gets really interesting with its narrative. So for those who are not familiar with Enoch or why out of all the people in the Old Testament, this one guy could have some merit to him having written down this book and passed it on. Let's read about just briefly who Enoch is. So in Genesis 5, uh, you can read about him in verses 18 to 24. But um, the relevant part is, says, When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So that last bit where it says, and he was not, for God took him, basically means that he was alive and around, and then God took him from the earth. He he did not die but instead he was taken by God to not experience death. Now, if you think that I'm just making that up, jump to Hebrews chapter 11, verse five, which says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, therefore he was take. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So again, Enoch did not die. He lived for 365 years and then God took him. And so what that ultimately means is if you read the book of Enoch, it actually shows him kind of being God's go-between between the heavenly father and these, what we can, for purpose of this discussion, we can call angels who impregnated human women and created these Nephilim. And Enoch is kind of talking about the judgment that was coming for them and things like that. Now, If, if, big if, please hear me, if this was written by Enoch, it gets really interesting because if Enoch did indeed write these things down, then what most likely happened is that he would have passed it on to descendants or even directly to Noah. And Noah would have then taken various writings of the time because we can assume that Noah didn't just hop on the ark and go, but instead that he probably would have taken artifacts of the time with him, possibly including something written by Enoch. 
And then from there, after he debarked the ark, he would have made sure that it was passed down through the generations. Now, what's really interesting is, again, I assume that a lot of people here are a bit more of the conservative, literal six days of creation mindset. And so there is a thing down in Kentucky called the Ark Encounter. It's a replica of what Noah's Ark may have looked like and things like that. And within that, they actually have Noah's study or his desk area, a place where he would have been writing and things like that. And they chose based on, not because we know that this happened, but in the Ark Encounter, they chose in Noah's office to include uh, documents and things like the Book of Enoch that Noah might have carried with him to preserve from destruction as God poured his wrath out on the earth through the flood. And again, if that's true, then that would mean that Israel, as they were carrying things around with them and passing them on and preserving them for the generations, the book of First Enoch would have been one of these things that explained to Israel part of why the world was the way that it was, why things were so broken and why God had aligned things a certain way. And also interesting is that the contents of First Enoch, they shed light on things, but they don't create new teachings and actually align fairly well with both New Testament teachings, understandings, and revelation. So, with all that being said, if this really was written by Enoch, why don't we include it in our Bibles? Why don't we have 67 books of the Bible? Well, once again, we have to fall back on inspiration. Yes, Jude and Peter quoted the book of Enoch, but the New Testament also has quotes from other things that were valuable or used at the time, but that didn't make them authoritative. It just meant that they those documents actually existed and were in wide enough circulation and usage that if someone quoted from it, they assumed that their readers and hearers would get the reference. So today, that would be like someone quoting from, say, a Star Wars movie or a famous book or things like that, where someone can quote it and even a pastor can quote something from the pulpit. You know, they may reference a, a good quote by someone like John MacArthur or something like that. And when the pastor does that, either they are saying something like Star Wars, hey, here's a good example that you understand from our modern culture. Or in the case of a quote by another Christian saying, hey, this is not authoritative, but it's valuable. And so when it comes to specifically the book of First Enoch, I think that's probably the way that we need to look at it is that the early church recognized that while it could have been carried along by Israel, they, they did not include it in their divinely inspired books written by prophets. Instead, they at best would have held it as just a important piece of historical data, right? An historical account from the a supernatural perspective, but different than being divinely and perfectly inspired by God and meant to be an authoritative part of their life. So even though 
Apostles quoted it, even though the early church even thought that the Book of Enoch, or at least First Enoch, was inspired. At the very least, we can say that this does give the Book of Enoch credit as being more than just some kind of weird made-up fiction, but there is something about its content that people found to be in alignment with the truth of God. But that does not make it authoritative. It still needs to pass the rest of the tests that we discussed in the previous episode, and ultimately it just doesn't in the same way that other Old Testament books do. So just like many men in the Old Testament and New Testament would have written other things that weren't preserved in our Bibles, we can hold Enoch with that same level of things saying this could have been written by the author that it claims, the events here could have actually transpired in the way that they say, but God has chosen not to have it be used in a way as the rest of our authoritative books, so we do not include it in our canon. So that is going to wrap up this discussion of the 66 books of the Bible, how we got ours, and why we don't have more than what we have. Now, in the end, while this is all interesting information, I think it's also important for us to praise God that he's preserved his word throughout all of history. Not only because we get to see the truth that he wants us to know, but because he's made sure that his truth isn't mixed with false teaching. The Bible is under enough attack today without giving its enemies something they can actually criticize. And so we are so thankful that when we are defending the truth of the word of God, we know that what we are defending truly is the word of God. Nothing more and nothing less. But I do hope that this uh, two-part series has been valuable because part of being a student of the Bible is to be a student of history because the Bible is a piece of history. It's not a made-up thing. It's not a collection of stories like Greek myths and things like that, but it is a historical book. The events in it take place in history. It's written divinely inspired by God, but written by human authors who existed in history during certain time periods. And so when we understand what the Bible really is and how we received it, it starts to also become clear why it holds the key to life. We see how God gave us more than just a collection of men's ideas, and thus we see why we should be willing to give up everything to obey what it says. And, I hope most of all, we see why the Bible alone is our authority for life and godliness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.